Well, we're finally getting a uh, Kevin Prendeville show out to you here on on this Friday. And I do apologize, uh, as I did with the personal finance course, um, that I've not been more on the ball. Um, I do owe you uh, more than enough of these for catch-up, especially since we've got a lot to get to. I mean, we've got things like uh, uh, British Airways retiring all of their jumbo jets, not just uh, six of them like uh, a Quebec airline did. All uh, Boeing 747s for British Airways are done. And, you know, the implications on that for the economy, what does it really signal? We'll get into that. We've got millennials overtaking baby boomers as the largest generation in the United States and what that means for economics, but more importantly, your personal finance. And we've also got uh, people potentially continuing to move out of cities and could there be a second hollowing out like we saw in the 1970s? And those are the things we'll get to today on the Kevin Prendeville Show. But first, we'll start with the opening salvo. Now, the opening salvo is designed for to be your food for thought. It is the first volley in our, uh, on our plane of ideas. And we'll start with demographics. Now, demographics are not often talked about in the financial industry, even though they play a pretty significant role. Now, obviously, in business, demographics take a big role. You've got to know who your target audience is. You know, a, a, um, a senior assisted living home wouldn't want to advertise to young 20-somethings. Similarly, um, you know, Lamborghini wouldn't put up ads in a McDonald's. You've got to know when it comes to demographics who you're selling to. But in finance, demographics can indicate a shift in money. It can indicate a shift in how we think about the market, how we think about who we as advisors, how we approach messages. And then... You've also got to consider when it comes to the financial institutions how long they're going to hold your client's money depending on whatever demographic they're in. So we're going to talk about the movement of millennials and their movement up in the demographics and the fact that they are now the largest generation and the fact that they also have almost no financial education. You see, boomers came up and they had people like, um, even though I disagree with them, they had Dave Ramsey, they had, uh, what was her name? Um, or moron or, or no, 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 uh, Ormond might as well call her, call her Susie moron, but regardless, they had ways of getting financial information to them that their parents didn't have access to and that they could feel like it was outside the system. That they felt it was tailored for them. And you can see the effects here in Tennessee all over the place. There are still lots of people who follow Dave Ramsey, a lot of older people. And a lot of people uh, who believe heavily in mutual funds. Now, similarly, I think 
millennials want to feel as though they are a part of some bigger change or bigger system. I think millennials want to be sure that they are conscious. So when they're investing in a, in a, in a fund, especially a mutual fund, they may go for a more conscious mutual fund. And those, those are funds that like don't invest in tobacco companies or don't invest in firearms companies, that kind of um, idea. Now, a mutual fund, it's harder to do because your money's spread all around, but the general idea where you have a, um, a fund that, that takes care of those things, you expect the manager to be honest about that. My point here is with inflation the way it is, and the way it's going to be with taxes the way they are and the way they're going to have to be, we in the financial industry need to change the way we approach personal finance. We have to protect our clients from increasing taxation. We have to protect our clients from inflation. We have to protect our clients from these market factors that frankly are going to wipe out any kind of rate of return we could get them. Because in large part of not only 2008, 2009, but uh, the residual effects of those bailouts, the coronavirus bailouts, the continual rate cuts by the Federal Reserve, we are in a precarious position and the staples that we have been preaching since the 1980s. You know, max out your 401k, only buy term insurance. You know, only pay with cash, all of that stuff is going by the wayside because there's a new threat. And it's not leverage, it's not credit. It's market factors such as taxation, inflation, opportunity cost, all of these things. And we're going to need to change that message as this demographic shift continues to take place. Now, with that being said, we're going to move into our first article of the day, which is the movement of millennials. Stay with us. Now, Cushman and Wakefield, for those who don't know, is a large commercial real estate firm. They own a number of office buildings uh, worldwide. They are um, really a force in the industry. And ever so often, they'll do their own internal reports and uh, publish them. I'm not sure if they are public, publicly traded, um, but they will publish anything from, from white papers to um, observations that they make in the industry, as it's not only important for them, but it also helps uh, people who might be interested in uh, leasing something from them or, or buying from them or vice versa. And in order to do that, uh, in order to better promote their brand, um, they release these reports. So they found that uh, with this demographic shift of millennials overtaking baby boomers as the largest generation, um, that millennials are moving towards the suburbs. They don't want to be in the cities. 
and this is they're they're talking about people who are in their early thirties, late twenties. That uh, the average uh, buying age of a home nowadays is is thirty three, um, and and they are moving out of the uh, cities. Um, that Cushman and Wakefield is expecting a huge glut of people to move out to the suburbs because you have um, either late millennials to the, uh, shoot, what came after them? Generation Z or something like that, that uh, will be following them in tow. And uh, Cushman and Wakefield has argued that the groundswell will have, and this is a direct quote, the groundswell will have uh, an impact on the office sector too because uh, businesses follow the labor force talent into the cities and some are likely to follow them into the suburbs. Now, with everyone working from home and companies migrating in some cases towards that model, um, people have the ability to do that, to move out to more rural areas and uh, to empower areas that were once uh, pretty small. Uh, so this could see a, a huge development for uh, opportunity for development and neighborhoods and that kind of stuff. And you'll see uh, grocery stores and, um, you know, uh, not quite the shopping malls, but strip malls and uh, places for more niche items. I think those will start to increase as well. Uh, and I say this from experience because here in Tennessee, if you go out towards uh, Franklin, uh, Leapers Fork, Spring Hills coming up, um, these areas that were smaller towns with a lot of farmland around them are getting developed and then uh, small businesses get that much stronger. You've got uh, a lot more kind of, ritzy isn't the right word, but but middle to upper middle uh small businesses, and that improves the local economy. Now, the other thing that it does is if companies continue to downsize, but they don't stay with the working-at-home uh, idea, and, and some people have said that remote work has really not worked um, in terms of productivity. So you may have a situation where companies... Uh, but for other people, it has. So you may have a situation where companies say, you know, X department uh, can work from home on, you know, these days, and and this department, you know, has to come in. So you could see less of a need for the big skyscrapers in office buildings, and therefore they could move out closer to the suburbs, which would reduce commute time and make themselves more attractive to potential hires. And... What this is going to do is really diminish those who do live in the city. It's going to diminish the city's power in general. Um, and, and another, in addition from uh, not just Cushman and Wakefield, but this article from uh, Fox Business that uh, is telling us that U.S. home building is surging um, because of these people that are moving to the suburbs, but also moving into rural areas. And farmers are selling for... For, for millions, and then you'll see uh, developments pop up. Um, and this is so, 
good in the sense that it's keeping the economy somewhat stable, at least um, in the real estate market. Um, but that being said, uh, what this is going to do to cities is decrease their tax base primarily. Now, it's obvious. As people move out, you don't have as many people to tax. And given the way that these cities are governed and the fact that people just simply don't feel safe, you're going to have a situation in which uh, people don't want to stay in this. Uh, people don't want to stay in the cities. They don't feel safe. They don't feel like their elected officials protect them. They don't feel like they can change the system. They're right on top of everybody. They have to live in an apartment. It's expensive anyways. And in many cases, it can be cheaper to go and build somewhere. You know, over the long run, you could get a construction loan, uh, and it uh, or uh, and from there, uh, you know, get a mortgage payment that really is comparable to what you're paying in rent, and not have someone living above you, and not you know have noisy neighbors, and not have uh, the potential riots burning down your apartment building. And you have your own land. There's something about having your own homestead and taking care of it. And so uh, because of this, uh, cities are going to, it's just going to continue the downward spiral of cities. And it's going to, as businesses begin to pull out and there's no tax base, uh, cities are really going to go downhill. That um, you're not... You're, you're going to see much like in the 70s where there's, you know, higher unemployment, but there's also not a lot, a lot of opportunities for those who are born into uh, lower income places in the cities that you're going to have a lot of these additional programs start because that's what politicians are going to run on. So the people who do stay are going to have to pay much more in taxes. Cities are going to be quite a drain on state finances in the sense that they will have enormous debt, more debt than they already do have. So I would be aware of investing in, in, in cities if this all pans out. Now this all remains to be seen, again, and we're forecasting out a decade, maybe more, um, but this could potentially shake the way that the American cities operate and their political power, which may not be all that bad of a thing. All right, next we're going to get into uh, British Airways retiring their Boeing planes and a billionaire who says there's a quite easy way to add $4 billion uh, into the economy, even during these times. Stay with us. Well, we've got... Uh, Quite an interesting story here from Fox Business. This was actually written by Art Laffer, who is uh, a doctor. No, not a coronavirus doctor or someone who wears a lab coat. But he does have a PhD uh, in finance and economics. He has uh, earned the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom and advised uh, both Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. And he's... Uh, as a guest, written an article in Fox Business 
talking about how uh, the U.S. could add a couple billion dollars to the economy, which is very important, um, without adding any regulations or uh, taxation or even um, messing around with these lockdowns. And it's actually quite simple, and, and I am really in support of it. And it's making the hiring process faster. And when companies, and it costs them, and Art mentions this in uh, his article, that the hiring process costs employers an average of uh, 42 days and $4,000, which, you know, we talk about opportunity cost a lot. That That is a lot. And uh, that amount of time uh, is known in, in economics as uh, frictional unemployment. And that's essentially because you're you're not unemployed um but you're not employed you're you're kind of in this weird gray area and if we work to cut down the number of days and the cost that it takes to hire uh, an employee it could help boost those job numbers that are uh horrible i mean just last month 1.3 more million americans uh, are unemployed and art here makes a great point that unemployment um, or, or frictional unemployment can be cut down by making background checks much more efficient uh, credential verification much more efficient see because a company and the, and the free market would have already handled this, but but a company has to go through all these government entities to verify certain things and get background checks and, you know, have you ever been arrested, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I'm sure many government computers are still running like Windows 95. <laughs> you know, I'm sure many uh, government agencies are still using typewriters and uh, they weren't very modern. And because of this, it really expands the amount of time that it takes for things like the background checks to be processed. And and that, in turn, increases the cost uh, to employers and for employees, you know, they're sitting around waiting for, for much longer. And by cutting this down, not only does it get people hired faster, but because of the reduced cost, companies are able to reinvest the money that they wouldn't normally otherwise have back into themselves to make the company stronger or back into their employees or wherever uh, they see fit. And it would just make the company overall that much stronger. A great article that's gotten nominal attention, now other than from the people who read or or listen to Fox Business, um, really would have seen it. uh, But it is a great idea that I'm behind and uh, I got half a mind to uh, write into President Trump about it. <laughs> but um, we're going to finish off here with uh, British Airways, and they're retiring their entire fleet of jumbo jets, Boeing 747s. Now, it's disappointing because it's an iconic plane. You know, it can seat a, a bunch of people. Um, it's great for intercontinental travel, uh, they're comfortable. And I say this from experience. I did go to Europe once in my life, and it was fantastic. And, uh, you know, these great big planes are, are really efficient at 
at packing in people, but also still feeling like you have enough room. And I'm uh, talking specifically here about the 747s. And they've been around for um, most of the British uh, Airlines fleet uh, has about been around for about 23 years. Again, according to this article in CNBC. Now, they're planning on phasing these out anyways for things that are more energy efficient, fuel efficient, um, and, and, and smaller. And I understand that. And also, you know, technology has gotten better. These planes were invented in the 1970s, and, and we've just gotten so much more advanced since then, obviously. But my point in bringing this up is not just to say, oh, look, you know, we, we're going to retire jumbo jets. It's to say that, look, travel the travel industry has been hit hard, very hard. It's going to be continually uh, demolished in the next couple of years, especially in the U.S. if, if we have a Biden presidency and something anywhere close to the Green New Deal gets through, where they restrict air travel. But people don't have the confidence in flying, and they won't for years after this. And people already, you know, didn't really love airplanes. So, in British Airways, instead of phasing them out, instead of taking down... Uh, the 747s and grounding them permanently now is just a sign that they are really hurting when it comes to uh, their profit and losses. And they may be getting bailouts and government funds and things that they need to stay afloat. But just the fuel alone on these things Uh, uh, costs an arm and a leg, more than you or I probably make in a year. And don't forget, too, that uh, the over in Europe, they've got airline executives saying passengers should wait until the fourth quarter for intercontinental flights, and they're not wrong. And that has nothing to do with... Um, has nothing to do with, with continued lockdowns, but... Um, and travel bans, because most of those don't go into to quarter four, but that has a lot to do with um, getting these companies back online and continuing to push. Um, now, in an official statement, they did say that um, it is unlikely that the magnificent queen of the skies will ever operate commercial services for British Airways again, due to the downturn in travel caused by the COVID-19 global pandemic. See, they're admitting to us that this is done because of these lockdowns. And they've been uh, terrible in terms of uh, this year has been has been uh, terribly brutal on on the whole industry, and it's it's unfair that that the government comes in and just destroys an industry like this. I mean, we've even got JetBlue and American sharing passengers to fend off United and Delta. That. There already wasn't much competition, but there could be mergers that come after this. 
There could be other companies going under. Um, there could be a real consolidation here, which is going to, in the long run, hurt the consumer. Which, in the long run, is going to potentially change the industry as we know it. And change, for the sake of change, is not always a positive. But with that being said, this has been the Kevin Prendeville Show. I thank you for inviting me into wherever you're listening to us from, whether it is your home, your car, or wherever you are. I hope that I've been able to impart some knowledge on you and help you understand the world at large. Uh, we'll be back hopefully tomorrow with a personal finance lesson and on Monday with the Kevin Prendeville Show.